Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for this morning as we uh, get ready to um, open your word. I want to pray that you would be uh, with us, uh, be with me as I, I preach, and uh, be with all of us as we listen, uh, not just to your word, but to what your spirit wants to say. Um, this morning, we um, especially uh, want to lift up our community and uh, specifically uh, the families of the, the students at Central A&M that, that are heavy-hearted and mourning and broken and grieving. We want to pray uh, that you would be with them um, and that you would comfort them. Uh, there are no words, uh, but there is you. And uh, you are enough. And so we pray that uh, in this situation right now, um, even, even as I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just invade that situation and be with them. Uh, we thank you for the power of your grace. We thank you for the power of your word. As we get into it, may we see it and be changed by it forever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, admittedly, in the church, when we tend to think about sin, we tend to think about it theologically. In other words, we tend to think a lot about how sin affects our relationship with God. And if you've attended church for any length of time, you kind of know this. You've heard it articulated that we were designed and destined to live in a perfect relationship with God, but the original sin of Adam and Eve and the sin uh, subsequently that came into the world uh, broke that community and, and damaged that relationship that we were created to have. That's the effect of sin on our relationship with God. We were not able to live forever with him anymore in the garden the way that we were designed uh, to, to live. And thankfully, God was not okay with that. So the story is the story, the story of the Bible is the story of God who is rich in mercy and rich in grace, who planned to bring healing and restoration to that relationship with him, the relationship we were created to have. So the most famous verse in the Bible is that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Through Jesus, our community with God is restored. Through Jesus, we are given eternal life in him. And someday, we won't go to live in a garden, but we'll go to live in an eternal city uh, with God. That's how sin affects us theologically. It disrupts the relationship we were created to have with God. And then Jesus, the gospel says, comes and he restores that relationship. That's a very quick surface-level synopsis of the theological effects of sin. But we all know the effects of sin are not just theological. The effects of sin are often relational. And we don't tend to think about this very often uh, in these terms, but we have language in our culture that kind of describes this. When somebody sins against you, you might say, man, you hurt me, or what you did was wrong, or you damaged our relationship. And we wouldn't exactly say it this way because this is a little more theological than it is relational, but really what we mean is, hey, what you did, you sinned against me. You hurt me. You damaged the relationship. You sinned against me. And like I said, probably nobody interacts with that language in their everyday life. You know, if you go to work tomorrow and someone kind of steals a project out from under you, you're not, you're not going to go to them and say, you sinned against me. Uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I condemn you. You're not going to do that, right? Because that's a little bit different. But that's essentially the essence of what we're talking about. And it really isn't any surprise here to, to learn that God, the gospel says, the good news that we've been studying the last eight weeks 
says that God cares deeply about our relationship with him, the theological effects of our sin and our relationship with, with him, but he also cares about the relational impact of sin, our relationships with one another, because sin's impact is real and it's profound, both theologically and relationally, and you can see it all throughout the scriptures. So in the garden, all right, the first sin ever committed, in the garden, uh, the man and the woman eat the forbidden fruit. And first thing we see is they hide from God, theological. The second thing we see is that they blame each other, relational. Right? So you see both those elements in that story. Later, their children, Cain and Abel, will have a dispute over a worship practice because Abel offered the best of his livestock in an act of worship. And Cain, the, the scripture says, offered some of his crop, not the best. He gave what was left over. And God was pleased with Abel, but not Cain. And so it starts with the transgression against God, theological, and it becomes jealousy and anger that later turns to murder, relational. Later on, when God gives the law, half of the law has to do kind of more uh, with more theological things or, or worship sins. The other half has to do with these relational sins that impact the way we treat our neighbor. Jesus will go on to say that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself, theological and relational. They're not separate corridors. They're, they're combined, but you see how it impacts both, and we tend to talk more about how sin affects us theologically. As a matter of fact, I'll make it a point in every single sermon I preach uh, to talk about the theological effects of sin to our relationship with God, what our sin has done to that relationship, and how Jesus came to connect us back. Every single Sunday at our church, we receive communion, which is another opportunity for us to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how he came to address the theological effects of sin. So we talk a whole lot about that. Today I want to spend a little bit of time in the other corridor. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about sin relationally. And I'm going to ask you, when I was going over this, this going over the manuscript this morning and the notes this morning, I was like, man, I'm going to trust you guys because I've been here forever. <laughs> I'm going to trust that we can kind of walk together and arrive at a conclusion because um, uh, some of this is, it's going to take us a little bit to get where we want to be. But I want to talk about the relational impact of sin and what Christianity teaches about it. Here's what Keller says, mostly. I, I, I change Keller's words uh, just a little bit uh, to, for, for the sermon we're going to talk about here. But here's what he wrote. Christianity offers a unique approach to repairing relationships. It neither privileges the sinful so that nothing changes, nor does it privilege the sinned against so that forgiveness is withheld. Without both, we cannot maintain human social relationships. So he's going to say, man, the gospel of Christ greatly impacts how we deal with sin in relationship. And if there's one thing every relationship has uh, at its component, it's that there, there's, there's sin. And uh, I, I knew a guy one time that used to start every wedding like, hey, this thing is great. You love him. He loves you. This is gonna, there, there's this one tiny little problem. You're both sinners, right? And so sin enters into every single relationship, and, and Christianity offers a solution to it. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways uh, in the life that you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have been taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator. Here there is no Gentile, or Jews, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, and uh, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. Uh, if you have any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and put on all these virtues, and above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, such as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. So, Christianity at its core, grace at its core, doesn't privilege, Keller says, the sinful. Here's what he mean by, means by that. In other words, Christianity doesn't say uh, that because you are forgiven and because uh, your guilt before God, the theological result of your sin has been removed. Christianity doesn't say because that happened, because your guilt has been removed, your responsibility when it comes to your sin has also been removed. So Christianity would teach that as followers of Jesus, we are called to go after our sin. Because we've been saved. To conquer it, defeat it, overcome it. That is a response to grace. So Christianity would not say, man, you are forgiven of your sin. Your guilt has been removed. So Christianity would not say, because your guilt has been removed, your responsibility has been removed as well. Christianity would call us to live different lives. All right, let me show this to you. Verses 7 and 8. It's an interesting transition uh, between verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, he has a list of what he calls the idolatrous sins. Uh, and you always have to be careful about the categories that I've laid out, because these are sins these, these are sins that have at their root cause a worship issue, but certainly these sins also affect our relationships with one another, and the sins that affect our relationship with one another also affect our relationship with God. So the categories aren't perfect, but let's just go with it for a minute. These are the idolatrous sins. So greed, he mentions. Greed is a sin that says, I worship money and possessions above all else, even above God, and it is the focus of my life. It's an idolatrous sin. Lust is a sin that says, I worship pleasure above all else, even God. Desire is a sin that says, I worship what I want above all, even God. And, and you get the point. And obviously, people are hurt by these sins, and they affect theologically and relationally. That, that's not the point. Um, but at the core of these sins is that God is not enough. Uh, I, I need to bring in a replacement or lesser God. And I love Paul's solution to these types of sins. He says, when you have a worship idolatrous sin, the absolute solution is greater worship is needed. You notice right before he mentions this list of sins, here's his advice. He says, set your minds and set your hearts on things above. It's a, it's a greater worship strategy that when you have trusted in a lesser God, 
When you have trusted in a minor league God, the greatest thing you can do is to set your heart and set your mind on things above. It's why worshiping together is so important. Because it's in the singing time that we did a few minutes ago that we are reminded that God is above all things. He is above my desire. He is above my greed. He is above my lust. He is above everything. He is greater than everything. And so we set aside the lesser gods and we worship the one true God. So during the worship time, you might lift your eyes to the heaven. It is a reminder that God is greater than all things. During the worship time, you might uh, raise your hands. Depending on how uh, you were raised, you might raise your hands or you might raise your hands, right? It, It depends on what kind of church background you come from, but you might raise your hands. It is a reminder that God is above all things. You might even kneel in humility sometimes during worship. It is a reminder that we're literally, instead of lifting God, we're lowering ourselves, but the message is the same. God is great. He is bigger. He is more powerful. And so we truly and passionately worship him. And as we do, as greater worship happens, lesser worship tends to solve itself. Right? The more you worship God, the less greed has an opportunity to, to grab hold. The more we worship God, the the less lust has a chance to take hold. The more we worship God, the more desire has a chance to take hold. And then in verse 8, he transitions to these relational sins. And again, I feel like I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but let's beat it one more time. It's not that these sins aren't worship or they're not against God. They most certainly are. But these are sins that Paul will talk about that are more relational. So he talks about anger and rage. That these are sins that happen when I falsely believe that you exist to serve me. Or I falsely believe that I should be able to control you. And when I don't, when I'm unable to control you, because, spoiler alert, you can't control anybody. But when I realize I can't control you, my anger comes out and my rage comes out. That's a relational sin. Filthy language. Uh, Every culture throughout human history has had uh, denigrating and devaluing Language. I was kind of amazed uh, by a podcast I was listening to one time. Thankfully, I had my earbuds in, right? You know, otherwise, my kid would have dropped a word that I wouldn't be super proud of in kid zone, which is not what you want, all right, uh, as the pastor of the church. But I was listening to this podcast, and I was listening to it for a specific interview that I'll tell you about in a minute. But leading up to the interview, before the guests arrived, I was really surprised by the language in this podcast. I was like, man, this is kind of like, filthy and bad, and I started to wonder, like, I started fast-forwarding through it, like, should I be listening to this? And what I was amazed by was the interview that I got on to listen on, uh, to listen to was Michelle Obama, former first lady. And I noticed that when Michelle Obama came onto the podcast, guess what disappeared? All the filthy language. There was no more swearing. There was no more any of that stuff. The language absolutely cleaned up. Why? Well, my observation was, They had such a level of respect for Michelle Obama that they didn't have for one another in the podcast. They had a respect for Michelle Obama not to use that language. Filthy language is a respect issue. Do I respect you enough to refrain from name-calling and accusation and foul language and in general just talk to you the way you are created as a child of God? So that's filthy language. Lying is another one he mentions. Lying is a relational sin that happens when I don't really trust you with the truth for whatever reason. And it hurts the relationship when there's deception or covering up of the truth. And all of us have been impacted by these relational sins. A lie told. Who's not been impacted by a lie told? 
a temper lost? Who's not been impacted by a temper lost? An abusive element in a relationship that comes out, who's not been impacted by that? And notice what Paul's advice is here. It's interesting. He says, when you identify a sin that is disrupting your relationship with others or or is disrupting uh, the life that you want to live, when you identify a relational sin, here's Paul's advice. Rid yourself of it. Get rid of it. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. See, I thought Paul was a grace guy. This feels like works righteousness to me. It's actually not. What Paul is describing here is a grace response to what Jesus has done for us. It is joining Jesus in the redeeming, sanctifying, changing work that he wants to do in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And so we are saved by grace to be sure. We are saved by grace to be sure, but we are also empowered by grace to change. Here's what's untrue. It is untrue that Christianity doesn't ask anything of me. It's untrue that Christianity doesn't require anything of me. It is true I am saved by grace and by grace alone. But like I said, you are empowered by grace and you are convicted by grace and you are challenged by grace. And as you understand that you are saved by grace, but you are also empowered by grace, you will find the internal working of the Spirit, the internal power of the Holy Spirit to overcome your old way of life, your old way of thinking, the sins that are disrupting your life and the life of the people that you love and and step into the life that God has in store for you. Several years ago, we were on uh, vacation. It was before Lila was born. And uh, we were at the beach. And uh, we were getting ready to go f- to the beach for the day. And so we're packing all of this stuff to go to the beach, right? Our beach bag was packed. Our cooler was filled with drinks. We had a couple of lawn chairs. Our arms were absolutely full of stuff. And as we were leaving the house to go to the beach, our son, Sam, who was a lot littler at the time, he walked out of the house and he said, we are the Higgs and we are prepared. <laughs> Right? We are the Higgs and we are prepared. And I am not sure Cheryl has ever been more proud of that boy than the moment he said, we are the Higgs and we are prepared. Right? Um, We laughed about that, but I hope my kids grow up with an understanding of what it means to be a Higgs. That pales in comparison to being in Christ. Being a Christian means certain things. Being a follower of Jesus means certain things, that we are like Jesus, that we are filled with his love and compassion, that we care deeply about those that are far from God, that we serve in whatever way, whenever that we can, that we care about the truth, we align our lives with the truth, and that we hate sin just like he hates sin. And as you follow Jesus, he has a way of bringing sin to your attention. That you're reading a passage of scripture, has this ever happened to you? Hopefully it has. You're reading a passage of scripture about Jesus and all of a sudden conviction comes. I'm not doing that in my life. Or you're praying and the Holy Spirit just lays something on your heart that pay attention to this. This is not right. This is not good. Or you're sitting in church and the preacher just that day kind of cuts you to the quick with the truth. Or you're in a Bible study and you observe something in another believer that is not in you. When you don't understand grace, you know what conviction does to you? When you don't understand grace, conviction might lead to shame. It might lead to hiding from God and to others. Listen, when conviction comes, shame is not the right response. A person living under shame doesn't understand grace. 
They don't understand that their sins have been paid for on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. They don't understand grace. When you understand grace, the right response to conviction is not shame. When you understand grace, the right response to conviction is empowerment. That this sin is hurting me. It's hurting the people that I love. And yes, it's forgiven. This isn't about it being forgiven. It's forgiven. But I am going to partner with the Holy Spirit, and I am going to partner with the resurrected Jesus, and I am going to go to war against this sin. We need less complacent Christians. Well, it's all under the blood. I'm forgiven, so just move on and move forward. We need less complacent Christians and more that say, no, no, empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the resurrection, Lord, I'm going to war against this sin. I am going to rid myself, Paul says. I am going to rid myself of it. Because Jesus paid for it with his life. And he loves me too much to leave me alone. And so I am going to war against this thing. And we go to war day after day after day until final victory in Christ comes. So we don't give up. And we don't give in. And we don't settle. And we say, it's all under the blood. I'm just moving forward with this sin in my life. I guess this is how I was created. This is how I was born. This is how I have to live. No, no, and no. We lean into grace. We lean into it, understanding that the sin is forgiven. My theological, the theological effect of my sin has been taken care of on the cross, but God cares about the a relational effect of my sin. And so I lean into it because it's being destructive to me. It's destructive to my family, destructive to the people I love, and I lean into it, and I go to war. I seek accountability. I seek help. I go to counseling. I do whatever it takes to go to war, to partner with the resurrected Christ, to overcome the sin that is a work in me. So Christianity does not privilege the sinful and just say, hey, it's forgiven. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? That is not Christianity. Christianity doesn't privilege the sinful. It also doesn't privilege the sinned against. Christianity doesn't teach that if you've been sinned against, you should just hold on to that forever. Christianity teaches grace, and it teaches forgiveness. Notice all the grace descriptions in this text. Right, let me reread it in verse 12. Therefore, as God's cho chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, that's grace, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, grace, 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 and grace, Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you have as, has any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So this list is meant to stand in contrast to the things that we're partnering with Jesus on to rid ourselves of, right? So it's compassion versus malice. Kindness versus filthy language gentleness versus rage, forgiveness versus slander, and love versus anger. And the message is clear. When sinned against, we are called to allow grace to invade the situation. But how do we get there? I think the rest of the text teaches us how. Here's what it says, first of all. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. My wife, Cheryl, home educates our, our son, Sam. And every once in a while, I will call in in the middle of the day, and just kind of touch base with Cheryl, how are things going? And I will hear that they're not going well, all right? 
This happens every so Stan doesn't want to be doing school. He's giving her a hard time about everything. By the end of the day, Cheryl doesn't want to be doing school, right? It, it, it just, all, all of that starts to happen. And what I have found sometimes is that I'll let my frustration about what's happening at home rule in my heart all afternoon. And I'll come home, and Cheryl and Sam have worked it out. They're happy. Their relationship is connected. I'm chippy, right? And he gets really confused by it. He's like, what, what on earth? You know, what, what on, that was like three hours ago, dude. Yeah, right? And I'm like, no, I, I kind of want to fight now, right? I want to argue now about this, right? I don't know why, but I've been, I, it's because I've been letting that frustration just rule in my heart all day long. Let me ask you, what is ruling in your heart? Is what's been done to you ruling in your heart? What's been said? Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the work of Christ rule in your heart. The gospel of good news, let it work in your heart, uh, rest in your heart. The work of the Spirit, let it rule in your heart. We can direct our hearts and our minds to whatever we want to direct it to. And Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. He specifically mentions the gathering together in this text to sing and admonish one another. He mentions hearing the word from one another. And I think it's an important reminder to us that the gathering is important. To gather together this morning and to sing the songs that we sang, to hear God's word read and proclaimed, to engage in conversations with one another, it's important to keep the message of Christ in us. When the message of Christ is in us, grace and forgiveness just tend to flow right from that. It happens naturally. And last thing he says is be thankful. Talked about this at Thanksgiving or so ago, but Thanksgiving is the soil that allows grace and forgiveness to grow. There's a repeated connection in the scriptures between these two items, between Thanksgiving and grace. It's a repeated connection about those that are thankful, grace just tends to follow Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving should be a repeated part of our spiritual discipline. That we're focusing our heart and our mind and our spirit on the things that we're thankful for, about Christ, obviously, about others, absolutely, maybe even the person that hurt us. Grace tends to just grow more and more in the soil of gratitude. So you can see what Keller's saying here, right? How these two, uh, how, uh, how these two disciplines both practice would lead to repairing relationships. On one side, you have the sinful addressing their sin and ridding themselves of it and leaning into it and overcoming it. And on the other side, you have those that are sinned against offering grace and forgiveness. And so let's answer the million-dollar question that you may be asking yourselves this morning. All right, yeah, both sides of those, practicing those disciplines. Yeah, absolutely, I can see how that would lead to restored relationships. Who goes first? Who starts? Who makes the first move? Because it would be easy for the sinner to say, man, if they would just show me some grace and forgiveness, I could pursue getting better. But I'm just tired of their condemnation. It would be easy for them to say that. It would be easy for the sin against to say, man, if they would start getting better, I think it would be easier to show them some grace and forgiveness. So who goes first? Let me put it on the screen for you. You. You go first. That's how healing comes. The ideal doesn't always happen. The ideal is that the sinned against 
and, and the sinful would be both pursuing these avenues and restoration would come. That is the ideal situation, but here's what we know. Rarely does the ideal situation happen, and so all you can really, uh, all, all you can really control is you. You can't really control them, and we both have both of these elements in our story. That's why it's also important that it be you. That on one side, um, I, I might need to show grace and forgiveness, and on the other side, I need to rid myself of some things. So I'm on both sides of the equation, and you are too. But the biggest thing is that, man, we can't control people. And by refusing to take action, a lot of times the person that we're hurting is no one but ourselves. So Paul would say, if you're in church or you're reading the Bible or you're praying or whatever the case may be, if you see a sin, join God's work in your life. Join the power of the Spirit. Rid yourself of it. Go to war against that thing and keep going to war. Never give up. Never give in. Never just, this is just how I am. This is just how I'm created. This is just part of my DNA, whatever. Never be complacent in that way. If you see a sin, partner with the resurrected Christ and rid yourself of it. And if you've been hurt by someone's sin, man, allow God's grace to invade it. It looks different in every situation. It's not that uh, full restoration is always possible, but just whatever it looks like in your situation, allow grace to invade that hurt. And Paul says in Colossians 3, he agrees, Keller agrees with Paul. I shouldn't have, Paul agrees with Tim. No, the opposite is true. Keller agrees with Paul that we do both. And so wherever you're at on this today, I want to pray for you as we get ready to receive communion together. If you're just, man, like, I become complacent with this sin, whatever it is. I, I can see that it's hurting me. I can see it's hurting the people that I love. I can see it's hurting. I want to just pray that, man, the Spirit would embolden you to join him in his work and to rid yourself of it. And if you're here today and you're feeling kind of tender and hurt by what a person said to you or, or did to you, I just want to pray for grace to flow like a river. All right? So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to receive communion, I want to pray for us as a church. We're both, we're all in both these lanes. Um, we, we absolutely are. We've all been sinned against, and we've all sinned against. Uh, and so there's a lot of ways that Colossians 3 and, and what Keller wrote, there's a lot of ways this can be applied. Um, and there's a lot of ways that it can be seen. So I just want to, I want to pray for the people in this room um, that you would convict us. Show us. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Help us to overcome. Help us to show kindness, gentleness, compassion, self-control. Help us to understand that we are forgiven, but it's not like things just stop there. That, yeah, yeah, we're, we're forgiven with, with you. Our, our relationship to you is restored. But now you're calling us to step into that grace and to go after sin that, that you paid for and you want to see us rid of it because you love us. Not for any other reason, but you love us. Help us to do it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion right now. Uh, the servers are going to pass the emblems. And you just hold on to those two cups and just think about God's grace. Think about the way that he's shown it to you. Think about the way that he's shown it to others. And if there's a, a sin right now, I, I, like I prayed, that the Holy Spirit would just kind of impress that on you, that you kind of become complacent with this. Let's get rid of it. Um, let, let's, let's get rid of that thing and, and, and step into the life that God has in store, that I have in store for you, God would say. Um, and if, uh, if there's a grace situation, I just want to pray that grace would invade it and, and change it and make it new. So you can hold on to those, and then I'll come back up, and we'll receive uh, communion all together as a church family. His body given for you.
his blood poured out. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another of any grievance that you have against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And put above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Will you stand? We're going to close with one last song. Um, next Sunday, we're starting a, a new series called uh, This is the Church. We're going to be looking at the metaphors throughout the New Testament about what the church is and what we're called to be. So we're excited about that series. Um, have a great week ahead. God bless you guys. May grace rule the day.